Hello and welcome to the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. We are covering November 2022 and I am joined by Sonia Lenigan. Um, we've got kind of, we're just talking about this before we got started, we've got kind of asylum month going on. We're covering an awful lot of content um, on asylum issues, which I guess to some extent reflects the kind of mainstream news over the last month or so where uh, asylum issues have really, really come to the fore. But there's, there's quite a few other things to, to go over as well. We've been a little bit selective about um, some of the blog posts. It turns out there's an awful lot of stuff that we we churned out in, in November. Um, so yeah, we're going to focus on mainly asylum stuff, a few other things to come. We're also going to finish, we hope, by having a bit more of a sort of discussion about a couple of uh, very opinion-based, should we say, uh, blog posts um, that I put out on on. Um, should the Home Office be abolished, which is a bit of a kind of, uh, uh, I think a lot of people would just have an automatic yes to that one. And we'll also sort of talk around that a little bit. And also a bit on um, strategic litigation. I put out a blog post that, that generated a certain amount of uh, uh, discussion on Twitter, which I thought was um, mainly healthy, but not not exclusively. Um, we'll, we'll come back to that later. <laughs> um, so as ever, if you um, want to claim continuing professional development for listening to the podcast, we we have uh, sort of things set up on the Free Movement website at www.freemovement.org.uk slash training, where you can join as a member and do a quiz. And, and that sort of helps to show your regulator that you are keeping yourself up to date and um, can be part of your training plan, which is actually something thing we're going to mention later in fact i think sonia one of your items is to do with solicitor regulation stuff yes it is i thought i'd take that one since i'm the solicitor here <laughs> excellent so we'll, we'll come back to that later um let's start though um with some asylum stuff and the first blog post we were going to talk about and sonia's going to take this one was um short-term holding facilities like the very controversial manston refugee camp um Thanks. Yes, I only realised afterwards that you'd actually written this one because I usually try to give you the ones that you've written. Um, But essentially, there was a lot of confusion circulating around what rules apply to Manston. We had politicians and officials mentioning a variety of applicable time limits um, from 24 hours to seven days. Um, And then you sort of put us out of our misery and wrote this very useful explainer. And essentially, it appears that a 24-hour time limit on detention for short-term holding facilities only applies if they are specifically holding rooms. And someone had asked me about this, and I went and looked at the definition, and I just thought I was going mad. So I was very glad to see your article saying, this is very unclear, this is very badly drafted. Um, The definition of holding room is a short-term holding facility where a detained person may be detained for a period of not more than 24 hours unless a longer period is authorised by the Secretary of State. That is completely useless definition. Um, Anyway, so essentially the absolute detention limit for all short-term holding facilities is seven days, as set out in Section 147 of the Immigration Asylum Act 99. That limit has been voluntarily reduced by the government to five days, and that is in the Immigration Places of Detention Direction 2021, which I think Jed Pennington got in touch with you about, Colin. Uh, and after that, the person needs to be released or transferred to a normal uh, immigration detention centre. And so the current position seems to be that if they're detained in short-term holding facilities for longer than five days, then they can claim compensation for unlawful detention. Yeah, I think that I think that's all right. I spent several hours of my life that I'm never going to get back trying to puzzle through all this stuff, and it, yep. it's a total nightmare. Um, and I think I heard subsequently 
um, I think it was one of the Home Affairs Select Committee um, evidence sessions that they had designated um, this whole camp as a holding room. Um, you know, I sort of do little uh, inverted commas over the idea of this being a room because it obviously isn't. And it's a sort of massive extension of the idea of a kind of holding room at an airport, which is where that kind of terminology comes from. Um, I think it was um, Commander Dan um, who, who who was saying that. What's his name? The clandestine channel threat. Channel threat commander. Dan O'Mahony. I Dan think his name. Marnie, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I, whether that turns out to be true or not, I'm not entirely sure, but you, you'd thought he'd be across that. So it's kind of one of his big things. Um, and I, I think it's all gone quiet in the news on on the unlawful detention claims that are going on here because it looks like an absolute slam dunk unlawful detention claim for pretty much anybody who was detained there um, when, when it, it was what, capacity 4,000 at one point for designed for 1,600 and people were being held there for quite substantial periods as well, journalists found. So um, that's, that's an interesting one. And um, yeah, ho- hopefully the several hours of my life that I won't get back will be useful to somebody at least. Yeah, well, now everyone's been released. I guess it'll be false imprisonment claims, which are slower. Um, but yeah, TBD. Yeah, it's sort of interesting one of, yeah, it's an sort of interface of news and law, and that's kind of what we try to do on the website. But that was quite a difficult one to puzzle through, I have to say. Um, okay, so I was going to take the next one. I'm going to cover this one quite quickly. Um, we've just put together a training course um, for, the, for, for, for free movement members about uh, Palestinian refugee claims and basically covering the way that article 1d of the refugee convention works so um this is sometimes referred to as an exclusion clause um it's it's referred to by academics like guy goodwin gill as being a more deferred inclusion clause and it's it's not at all clear how it works when you just look at the text yourself. If you're reading the Refugee Convention and you read Article 1D, you'd have no idea that it applied to Palestinians exclusively or at all. It doesn't mention Palestinians. Uh, it's, it's framed in quite general language. But when you start to dig into the history, the drafting, who proposed it, the reasons they proposed it and so on, it all becomes a bit clearer. And if you if you if you do find yourself representing um, Palestinians claiming asylum, it's absolutely essential that you understand how Article One D works. Um, so have a quick look at that that blog post. It's um, been written by Jasmine Quiller Doost, who is our training kind of writer and and editor. And um, there's a much more detailed explanation of the history, the case law, and so on available as as part of the course that goes with that. So really just sort of flag up that it's there. If if you're interested in these these issues, then do take a look at the blog post. And if you're really interested in these issues, then then have a look through the the training course. It's a relatively short one. It's probably about an hour's work. We've estimated about one hour CPD points. Um, Right, I'm covering the next one as well, which is how the asylum whitelist works and what the government plans to change. Um, It's not really this. I I wrote this one really for an external audience, so to speak, in the sense of kind of policymakers and journalists and so on, um, rather than immigration lawyers, because immigration lawyers doing asylum stuff do know how the whitelist works. I hope they do. Um, The whole idea of clearly unfounded certificate section 94 of the the 2002 Act and so on. Uh, Familiar with the case law, you know, what it means to be clearly unfounded. But the the reason I I wrote this one was because we're seeing um, some interesting policy discussions. Interesting is a loaded word, well, it's a neutral word for a loaded discussion, should we say, um, about how to basically deal with this backlog that that the government has allowed to build up over the last few years. Um, where 
they're not even close to deciding, making the same number of decisions as applications. So the backlog is just going up and up and probably even will be at the next quarter as well, unless anything drastic happens in the meantime. So the government's looking at how to speed up decision making as well as clearing the backlog. And one of the proposals is to start fast tracking cases, um, focusing perhaps on clearly unfounded decisions. So this one sort of goes through that process, um, talks a bit about the old Oakington process that... um, Old hands like me remember, as my, my first job was at the Oakington Detention Centre. Um, but, but suggesting towards the end of the blog post, well, why don't you look at fast tracking good cases? You know, we've got three nationalities with a 98% success rate. Um, it, it, if you establish that you're a national from one of those countries and you pass security checks and so on, you should just be granted asylum. It'd be much more straightforward. It doesn't involve detaining people. Um, so yeah, there, there's kind of discussion of, of, of those issues if you're interested in them. So so do take a look. Um, Sonia, you, you you had something that you wanted to say, I think, about the, the whitelist, yes. didn't you? I trailed a rant. Um, yeah, I just want to make the point that there is a lot about asylum policy that disproportionately impacts LGBTQI plus people, but this is one that makes me particularly furious as it is such a blatantly heteronormative list. For example, it says that it is safe for men in Nigeria. That is not the case if you are a gay man. So it doesn't it doesn't say only straight men, but it just says men in Nigeria. Um, similarly, in 2021, there were grants of refugee status for claims based on sexual orientation from Ghana, India, Kenya, Brazil, and those are all countries that are on the safe list. So, you know, for LGBTQI plus people, that list is completely unfit for purpose. Uh, and if a new list is to be brought in, then it really needs to be more explicit as to uh, it to, in order to take into account the needs and safety of LGBTQI plus people, because it just does, doesn't currently do that at all. Yeah, uh, there's all sorts of problems with the the way the government's talking about um, asylum claims again. Because it feels like we've been going through quite a good time in some ways. I, I know it doesn't didn't feel like that at the time. It's all looking. It's always with hindsight we can see these things. But, you know, the success rate for asylum claims is so high at the moment, um, and. Um, yeah, you know, and, and the, a lot of Albanian claims, for example, uh, have been successful in the past for previous cohorts. That won't necessarily be the case for the sort of people who are arriving now because of the, the, the decision-making delays. But, you know, the, the, the ignoring the fact that trafficking is clearly a serious problem in Albania, ignoring the fact that lots of sexuality-based claims actually succeed from these countries, some really quite problematic, um, yeah, some problematic countries on that list, aren't there? Ukraine is on the list. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I don't, we needn't say more. I think when yeah, it's just massively out of date and, and poorly conceived in the first place. Um, okay, so just moving on to next blog post, and this this kind of contextualizes the whole reason why this is Asylum Month, I suppose, and it's it's because the um, the latest asylum statistics uh, and immigration statistics generally were were released. Um, the headline for our blog post on this is the, the asylum backlog hits one hundred and fifty thousand, net migration hits half a million. Um, so those big numbers were big news. We've got the Home Affairs Select Committee sort of looking into things and that absolute uh, like jaw-dropping car crash interview, um, not interview, but um, clip that everybody was sharing on on Twitter of Suella Bravman just totally failing to answer a question on the safe routes to claim asylum, essentially, and really highlighting the, the the problems in the system. So there's been an awful lot going on there on on the kind of stats, and 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 that's really reflected in the news and the fact that the government and 
Um, we didn't say this a second ago, actually. The opposition now, I think there's um, the news just this morning is that um, the Labour Party is proposing a, a new fast track based on the, the white list as well. Um, so there's an awful lot going on there. And as ever, we've tried to sort of pick out some of the highlights from the statistics without going into too much depth. So if you're interested in the, the background to all this and what's actually going on, then do take a look at that blog post. Um, right, Sonia, again, this is sort of part of the context. Um, you were going to take the blog post on understanding the Home Office's problem with asylum decisions, which was by John Featonby. Yes, I took this one because John and I talk about this pretty much all the time. Um, so he was looking at factors behind the increase in the asylum backlog, um, and he's highlighted three developments um, that he thinks are a factor. First one is home office staffing shortage. Yes, absolutely. Um, This is really interesting to see the figures. So in 2016, there was a significant fall in the number of people making decisions down to just 260 people. Whereas um, in the recent Home Affairs Select Committee session, they were told that there are now over 1,000, 1,073 decision makers. And they're still trying to increase numbers. So that is a very welcome increase. Uh, It's obviously going to take them a while to get trained and get enough experience. But, you know, that is something good that has been done. Um, Another factor he identified was the dropping of the service standard. I was pretty sceptical about this, to be honest. Um, In 2018, 2019, the Home Office dropped their six-month service standard. Um, But actually, there does seem to be a correlation with an increase because the percentage of people receiving a decision within six months pretty much immediately dropped from 56% of people to 25.6% of people, and it has stayed around there ever since. I just never thought the Home Office paid much regard to their service standard, to be honest. Um, The next factor, which is a huge one as far as I'm concerned, is inadmissibility. Uh, In the first 18 months of inadmissibility inadmissibility rules being in place, only 83 decisions were served, despite uh, almost 16,000 notices of intent being issued. Half of those given notices of intent have now been admitted into the asylum system properly. So all inadmissibility is doing is adding another six-month delay during which people are just sitting and rotting in asylum accommodation um, for just no no benefit whatsoever. It's completely ridiculous. And that is something that needs to be dropped as a priority. Uh, And then the future problems. So these changes following the new plan for immigration have introduced backlog at the beginning, which is inadmissibility. And then there is the new black backlog that I think will be coming, which is in relation to group one, group two decisions. So essentially the Home Office will write to someone and say, we we are considering granting you group two refugee status. Uh, and then you have 10 days to respond to the Home Office explaining why a person should not be given group two, i.e. temporary refugee status. Um, but that then requires the Home Office to consider those rep- representations and make yet another decision. Uh, it's currently unclear how long that will take, but going on current form, I'm going to take an educated guess that this is going to cause problems. And until they're granted leave, those will be people who have been recognised as refugees but are unable to move on and support themselves and just start getting on with life. So it's just another area of government policy that is guaranteed to increase the cost of the asylum system generally. So at that stage, but then obviously further down the line as people need to make several renewal applications. Yeah, and those renewal applications, it's like they're sort of, the Home Office is creating 
all of this extra work for themselves to do yeah. um, for no purpose at all. You know, it's, they're not I going know. to they're not going to remove any of these people. The safe return reviews are, are very unlikely to say that anybody can go back. Um, and and even if they did, they couldn't remove them anyway. They'll have been here for years. Exactly, know, removals are at an all time low, it's, and it would just be cruel. It's it's mind bending how bad these policies are and how destructive they are. Um, so yeah, they absolutely need to be binned as soon as possible. Yeah, and the, and the thing that really gets me is that I need, they're obviously bad for refugees, although without really being bad enough to put anybody off from coming here. They're just kind of general unpleasantness and it's like kind of sense of insecurity. I was, I was talking at um, a kind of integration thing yesterday, actually. And um, yeah, you know, employers are much more reluctant to invest in, in staff, to give jobs, to give training to people who've only got limited periods of leave, um, uh, as well as the kind of feeling of, of insecurity that this gives you, which is probably a false feeling because you probably are here to stay permanently, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it to you. Um, there's a couple of things I was, I was wanting to ask somebody about actually. So this may be my chance. So the, this, this, the fall in, in, in caseworkers at the home office was is it my am i remembering this wrongly that they moved the asylum team to liverpool or something does that coincide or is that have i got that rock completely wrong um honestly i lose track there are officers decision making units all over the place um so there's leeds sheffield merseyside but i always lose track of which team is doing what basically uh we know fresh claims are in liverpool um yeah, so it used so I, to be all at Croydon, didn't it? And then I wonder, I wonder if it was when they. I don't know. I don't know. You don't know yeah. either. So that doesn't nope. that doesn't help. Yeah. Um, and then the six month standard. Um, I I remember at the time I thought that they dropped it because they were already missing it. But you're right. And there's a real there's a real change there, isn't there? But my recollection was the same as yours that they dropped it because they weren't meeting it. So I'm still not sure about causation correlation here but um those things seem to have happened around the same time so potentially yeah. maybe they saw the wind the way the wind was blowing and dropped the standard kind of preemptively or something well and then the, yeah unclear well, the other thing is the admissibility stuff so again i'm not quite sure i've got my head around this but i've, I've started to I, the admissibility seems like an obvious explanation for why there's delays but i started to think yeah. well maybe it's not because Actually, they couldn't make the decisions anyway. So even if they didn't have the inadmissibility thing, these delays are are because of the short staffing rather than it's like like the inadmissibility process kind of provides cover for them in a way rather than causing it as such. Um, no, I still don't think so. I still think it is the fact that those cases, you know, technically they're not even being looked at. So there are cases which are potentially quick grants that just have to sit there for another six months. Um, so I definitely think inadmissibility has caused you a huge problem. I looked at the figures and you can see like once inadmissibility came in, those um, the size of the backlog really started skyrocketing. So yeah. I think absolutely it is a key problem. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, okay. Re- thanks for that, Sonia. That was really interesting. Um, and I think you were going to cover the next um, thing as well, which kind of ties into some extent with that. Um, yes, very briefly. Appendix settlement protection, indefinite leave to remain for people granted refugee status or humanitarian protection. Essentially, this article was updated to reflect the changes uh, in the National Indian Borders Act and that there are now two routes to settlement uh, with Group 1 and Group 2 refugees. This article looks at the process just for those in the five-year route to settlement because obviously we are around 10 years off needing article explaining about the 10-year route to settlement for Group 2 refugees. 
That's a sobering thought. Um, okay, and then a quick mention from me for a piece by Sarah Wabi at, I think, Turpin Miller, who wrote a, a short piece for us on um, reducing distress when working with children in the asylum process. So kind of uh, some some useful practical pointers on that, but I'm not going to run through them in detail. And then I think it's, um, it's back over to you to, uh, for a blog post that you wrote, actually, Sonia, this time. Yes. Oh, so much maths. This was just traumatic. Um, luckily, it was a rainy Sunday when I did it. Uh, the main point I want to highlight in this uh, is that the Immigration Enforcement Competent Authority seems to be deciding, and when I say deciding, I mean conclusive grounds decisions, less than 10% of the number of cases that have been referred into it. Uh, to contrast, the Single Competent Authority, they made decisions equivalent to 41% of the number of cases referred to them. So output of IECA seems astonishingly low, and that's obviously not going to help with delay, which I think is the reason it was set up to begin with. So basically, everyone I've spoken to about this article, I'm like, look at those, look at the bit about the IECA, because, you know, that's just a crazy low number of cases that they are processing. What's going on? And that matches with the asylum backlogs and so on as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, and it's really bad for those who are affected for very similar reasons. It sort of stops them from being able to sort of move on with things. Um, yeah. Yeah, apart from that, just go look at it. Lots of numbers. <laughs> so many numbers. <laughs> selling it, literally selling it there. Um, okay, so on the subject of lots of numbers, I think that is a bit of a theme for this month, isn't it? Um, there was a, a, an interesting, I thought, um, reminder from Charlotte Rubin, who wrote a piece for us on reminding us that the, the refugee reception crisis isn't exclusive to the UK. And this is something that I think a lot of commentators um, forget. So I, I had um, had some a weird contact with... Um, uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure I'm supposed to say who it was. So it was one of these right-wing commentators who, who, who blathers on about things and um, a, a report that they'd written and um, it, talking about the UK as being a magnet for refugees. It's like, well, it's just not, you know, actually very few people are, are, are trying to come here compared to other European countries. And they've got this kind of mindset where this is, you know, that the the promised lands. That's how people see it, and they they desperately want to come here and so on. So it's a reminder that actually numbers are up across Europe. Of course, other countries are receiving far more um, asylum seekers than the UK, uh, and just to just to remind people that you know this British exceptionalism stuff is uh, is is exceptionalism. It's um it's actually. It, it's uh, it's a situation that's across Europe, and it's arguably much worse in in other countries. The numbers are much higher in other countries. Did you um, convince him? Uh, no, <laughs> no. I think there were some changes of language, actually. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, my mind is racing now with names. Uh, there've been a few. Uh, <laughs> yes, I know there have been a few recently. There's been a few reports recently, uh, so it's not necessarily who you think it is. But um, yeah, it's an interest. It was an interesting discussion, but um, I think fairly fruitless. And and I kind of yeah by saying that I'm preempting something that I've I've I've, I've done a um, book review of Adam Wagner's um, Emergency State on the pandemic, and mm-hmm. I've en- I've ended up with a very short review of the pandemic stuff, and just saying this stuff is what happens to immigrants all the time, and and had a good rant about it. Um, so um, 
yeah, Yay. yeah. There's, there's more I on that to come. More on that to come um, next week. Uh, depending on when I actually manage to get this process, it'll probably be this week. Actually, yeah, by the time I've actually edited the recording and got it out there and so on. Um, okay, so that was the stuff on Europe and Sonia. I think it's back over to you for a failed asylum seeker's false identity conviction being quashed. Yes, no numbers in this one. So the case is Elmi in the Court of Appeal. They quashed the conviction of someone who had claimed asylum and been found guilty of possessing a false identity document. As a result of the conviction, he couldn't apply for citizenship and was barred from certain jobs. Uh, He is a Somali national who arrived using a false passport. Criminal proceedings relating to that started in 2010. He had claimed asylum, but was not advised that he could use the defense of a presumptive refugee under Section 31 of the Immigration and Asylum Act 99. So this is where it gets interesting. Ultimately, his asylum claim was refused. And after appealing in 2013, the FTT held that he was not a refugee, but he was granted humanitarian protection. So essentially, the Court of Appeal was looking at whether someone who's been granted humanitarian protection could... um, could rely on a Section 31 defence. The Court of Appeal held that there was no space for a more expansive definition of refugee, and so people granted humanitarian protection were excluded. However, the Section 31 defence includes presumptive refugees, i.e. a person claiming asylum in good faith, and that is likely to be most, if not all, people granted humanitarian protection. Yeah, it's it's a it's a useful one, and we're going to see more of um, Article 31 of the Convention and uh, perhaps not Section 31 of the the 99 Act, because I, I don't know what you've heard, but I've 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 heard there have been sorry, 400 prosecutions under the the amended um, criminal offence law under the Nationality and Borders Act. Um, so there's quite a few cases going into the criminal justice system on the new offences, and um, you know I don't know how long it's going to take those to filter up to the um, to the Court of Appeal, where we get some some more discussion of these issues on you know how far you can be a presumptive refugee, how far it, it operates to protect you by by means of kind of a, an abusive process protection and things like that. Um, so yeah, watch this space. There'll be there'll be more on these issues soon, hopefully. Um, now you've left me with a, a, a sort of nightmare of a case, um, which, which is it's all quite long running and quite complicated. I'm not going to go over too much of it in detail now but this is the um, mobile phone seizures case um it's got a lot of letters acronyms um it, it you know for, to, to represent the appellants who, who are anonymous hm ma and kh um and jed pennington wrote this up he's been following it very closely um it's it's a really shocking case um in the and it's shocking that mobile phones were being seized from all asylum seekers routinely, although in some ways not that surprising, uh, kind of expect that from from the Home Office and the present government. Um, it's pretty shocking the way that the information was being accessed on them as well. Um, but from a, a sort of lawyer's point of view, the most shocking stuff is the way that the government lawyers um, handled this because it later transpired that they had been, um, I, I, to put it neutrally, less than candid about um, the, the existence of this policy, which had been denied in really strident terms in the pre-action correspondence and in the early pleadings. And then it turned out that the policy did exist, um, it had applied, and that they had misled in in multiple ways, essentially. Misled being my word, not um, not, not the words of the, the court. And one of the things that really strikes me about the way that this is, has been handled and the way that the um, the Court of Appeal kind of comments on it. Sorry, it's, it's not the Court of Appeal, it's the, it's the High Court comments on it, is you, know, you contrast 
this with the kind of Hamid cases and the way that um, you know claimant lawyers are live in fear essentially of, of kind of being hauled in front of the court in, in Hamid proceedings and being referred to their regulators and everything. Um, and um, you know, there's nothing like that. There's nothing nothing remotely like that um, threatened against the, the the government lawyers who were who who, who were. I think I think it's fair to say they were actively misleading the court, um, sort of by by failing to disclose um, rather than outright lying. I think possibly maybe maybe it tipped over, but um, but quite a, quite an interesting um, contrast in in the treatment of different legal teams here. What do you think, Sonia? Um, I thought this was a fun one to give you. Um, <laughs> I am less shocked than you, and you know I do think it is completely appalling the way that they are continually allowed to get away with this sort of stuff whereas we do face things like hammered hearings it's a complete and utter joke and I think the judiciary really needs to take a look at itself and the way that it is treating the different parties here their representatives um shocked I'm not surprised I suppose um I think some of this actually is a bit surprising I think the 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 degree to which it was denied and the time that it took for this to come out gradually and the way that they continued to hide certain aspects of the the policy by sort of procedural maneuvers and stuff i think is actually quite surprising because um you sort of would have expected them to have come clean a bit sooner than they did once they'd been caught out um but that's that's yeah that's not what happened here but yeah it's it's really quite aggravating the the different standards of treatment that we're we're seeing here um yeah so quite cross about that yes right sonia back over to you i think we're moving on um from asylum at least temporarily we're going to sort of come back to it perhaps a bit towards the end but we've got a few other things to cover as well yes see i gave you the fun judy of candor one and i'm doing home office guidance update the nhs and comprehensive sickness insurance for eea nationals happy days Um, So essentially, the Home Office has finally updated their guidance following the case of VI and HMRC, which was handed down in March this year. And the update effectively concedes the judgment in VI and HMRC, takes into account how the NHS handled the term ordinary resident in the past. Essentially, it confirms that anyone living in the UK would be entitled to access the NHS, even if they did not have separate sickness insurance on arrival. This issue has sort of been litigated and resolved now. Um, I think the the really useful bits in this article, apart from that update, is just setting out the scale of the wrongdoing by the government and the, the effect that this has had on people. And then right at the end of the article, there is a reminder that there may be Frankovich damages available. However, the deadline to get those lodged is the end of this month. Succeeding claims lodged after that date will be far more difficult. So if you have clients who were refused welfare benefits, housing assistance, uh, student loans, who forked out for private medical insurance, you know, all of these issues, some people may have been deported or refused permanent residence. It's just something to be aware of. Um, You know, yet another shameful chapter in the history of the government's treatment of people yeah that's a bit of a theme for for the for the blog and the podcast isn't it it, and what the thing that gets me about this is i'd love to know the name of the person at the home office in 2011 who changed the policy to require comprehensive sickness insurance because i think i tried to sort of trace this back when i was writing welcome to britain and i think it happened in 2011 um it's just you know you can imagine somebody thinking this was a a really clever wheeze, and then all of the misery that that caused, particularly after Brexit, but not exclusively, 
um, because you know all those permanent residence applications being refused and everything as well at that point. Just just absolutely astonishing bit of um, terrible terrible policy. Yep. All right. Next one's me as well. Developments in third party financial support for spouse or partner visa applications. So this the case is SB and Secretary of State for the Home Department. So this was in the Court of Appeal, but after they granted permission to appeal, uh, the appeal was allowed by consent. Uh, Essentially, it's looking at uh, the immigration rules now allow people to rely on third-party support in order to meet the minimum income requirement. The issue in this case was whether or not there was a requirement for a ring-fenced sum of available income that would take people up to the minimum income requirement. So in this case, they were £11,000 short, um, or whether the third party just needed to earn above the minimum income requirement. So the upper tribunal held that the third party needed to show a spare £11,000 of residual disposable income. Um, SB appealed, saying that the tribunal was effectively imposing an additional requirement not found in the rules, and that once a third party was accepted as credible, there was no reason in principle why their support should not be calculated in the same way as it would for a sponsor, which is by reference to the amount earned. Obviously, we don't have a written decision on this, so this article is it if you're dealing with this issue. Um, It does seem that the Home Office needs to change the guidance, but in the meantime, just use the article and I think Deborah wrote it. So maybe ask her if you've got any questions. Yeah. Sorry, Deborah. <laughs> oh dear. I hope I don't get too many, but no, it's, a re- it's a really useful um, sort of run through. Bloody terrible home office argument. Um, the idea that you have to have this ring fenced amount when that's not how the 18,600 works anyway. Um, you know, it, it's not supposed to be aside from your accommodation costs and stuff like that. So um, pretty creative, should we say, on the part of whoever at the home office was, was inventing that argument. It was also quite miserable because... Um, they had initially met the minimum income requirement for the first application and then the sponsor retired and his retirement income wasn't enough. So this, you know, these, this was a family that were facing being separated for this reason, potentially. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, again, it's it kind of uh, having rules on entry is one thing. Having them on extension is another, I, I think. And that's, it's another example of uh, really short-sighted uh, sort of extension requirements policy where, you know, what happens if people don't meet those requirements? Are, are, are they really going to leave the country? Is that really good kind of social policy and everything as well? Um, yeah. Okay. Right. Anyway, the next one is yours as well, Sonia. Uh, Post-Brexit Marriages in Durable Partner Appeals. The case is Elias, Fairness and Extended Family Members, uh, an upper tribunal case. Uh, So Mr. Elias made an application as a durable partner of an EA national before 31 December 2020, but the Home Office did not accept that his relationship was durable. He appealed, and by the time the appeal was heard, Uh, he and his partner had married. But this was after the end of the Brexit transition period on the 31st of December 2020. Um, The FTT judge decided that it was not a new matter which required the Home Office's consent to be considered. Um, The upper tribunal agreed that marriage was not a new matter. The reason they gave was it could not constitute a ground of appeal because it took place after the implementation period. Um, The upper tribunal also considered the relevance of a post-Brexit marriage in a durable partner appeal, and they held that it would not be determinative of the appeal without more. Um, A sort of separate point is the upper tribunal also held that in Mr. Elias's case, the judge had descended into the arena by interfering in the Home Office's cross-examination, and the hearing was therefore unfair. So if you like reading about judges doing that sort of thing, then 
do check out this article. Right. And then over to me for um, a blog post about those of Chagossian descent, if I'm if I'm pronouncing that correctly. So the situation of the Chagossians, this is a, a group of people who were basically turfed off their island and treated abysmally, just as you know, no no alternative view, no room for an alternative view on this one. They're just treated absolutely appallingly by the British government. Um, and their situation was sort of partially remedied in 2002 for those who had originally been turfed off the island. But I, I've been sort of trying to trying to work this out a bit why why there was still a, an ongoing problem. I think I think the answer is a fairly sort of obvious one. Once I'd actually spent a little bit of time thinking about it, uh, if that's not a contradiction in terms, is that of course their descendants um, had been born. Um, not on the island concern, not in British territory, because they they just had to go to different places, um, and therefore they they couldn't have inherited um, British status from their parents. So very belatedly, that has been put right by the Nationality and Borders Act. This is one of the good bits of the Nationality and Borders Act, and uh, the new application has now finally opened for people who are of Chagossian descent to be able to obtain. British citizenship or British overseas territory citizenship, which then also allows for a route to British citizenship as well. Um, so that's good news for those affected. There's a, a short piece on the website about the application process. Um, and if you know somebody, if you're representing somebody um, who, who's affected by this, then that's a sort of useful starting point with a few resources that it links to as well. So um, that's a that that was the rare bit of good news in the Nationality and Borders Act, and that's now in force. So good news there. Right, Sonia, you were going to cover the next bit. It said we, it's about solicitors that we said we'd come back to at the start. Yeah, so uh, this is the Solicitors Regulation Authority publishes new guidance for immigration work, supervision, quality, and complaints. Um, so this is a thematic review that the SRA carried out based on data provided by 70 firms of varying sizes. Um, Of those 70, 40 were selected for more detailed questioning, either because the initial responses gave cause for concern or because it was believed they could provide interesting insights. Of the 70 that, I'm not sure how this relates to the 40, but out of the 70 in total, 10 firms were referred to the SRA's internal disciplinary process. Um, I think Jawed is quite neutral saying, you know, it might reflect a far wider problem or it just could be disproportionately reflected in that small sample. I personally feel pretty confident uh, in that sample being indicative that we do have a much wider problem in the sector. Um, Everyone who is a solicitor should read this because it's a good reminder for things like making sure you've recorded the strengths and weaknesses of a case on file and, you know, really helping clients with raising complaints internally and, you know, making sure that they feel they're able to do that when they have concerns. One thing that really annoyed me about this um, was the SRA complaining about solicitors not reporting concerns about work done by other solicitors. Um, So they've been very strongly critical of this. But then they also say, we found that many fee owners said they do not know how to make a complaint to us. And in response, they just said, this is an issue we will continue to seek to address through further communications and engagement with the profession. 
Well, I mean, the fact that they've not signposted to current guidance on this speaks volumes, in my opinion. If they want to tackle the issue properly, they need to publish very clear guidance on how a solicitor should can and should be raising concerns in the absence of client consent, because that is what they have said, and that is what we're talking about here. Unless and until we are told very clearly the parameters of what can and should be done, nothing is going to change and something absolutely needs to. So I really hope that the SRA is going to sort that out very quickly and publish something that we can use to help tackle this problem. Okay, that's interesting. Thanks, Sonia. Um, I, one thought that sort of crossed my mind as you're, you're going through that is I, I um, you know, We've heard various things about what's going on in the legal aid market recently and firms kind of pulling out of asylum appeals and and so on. And yeah, I wonder how realistic some of these regulatory obligations are if a firm already can't make, uh, can't break even basically on, on that kind of work. And of course, that doesn't apply in the private work at all. But um, I wonder if that's, I don't know, I wonder if that kind of adds a complicating dimension to, to, to legal aid work? It was in relation to criminal law, I think, but I think the Law Society put something out recently about, you know, your obligations around work that you can't profit off or something along those lines. Um, so they did put out something on that specific point. That was the Law Society, not the SRA. Yeah, might might perhaps be transferable to immigration work as well. I don't know. Yeah, interesting, interesting issue. Um, so finally, we're going to get on to talk about uh, these these blog posts I sort of signposted at the, the start about um, should the Home Office be abolished and this strategic litigation stuff. It's like, I think I, I, I reached a, a conclusion I was slightly surprised by um, it, in response to the question, should we abolish the Home Office and, and kind of said no in the end. Do, I, I imagine you might have reached a different conclusion, Sonia, or what do you think? I mean, I did laugh when you said that because initially I was like, oh, usually we agree on things just in a different way. But no, I do think that the Home Office should be abolished. Um, there are certain elements of the article that I did agree with you with. For example, a replacement absolutely must take immigration with it, not just asylum. That wouldn't work in the slightest. Um I also agree that assisted voluntary return needs to be sorted out properly. I am not supportive of forced returns, and I can't really see a situation where I would be simply because I've pulled too many people off planes who have subsequently been found to have a right to stay here. Uh, Legal aid needs to be fixed first uh, so that we can ensure that people have had their case properly considered and put forward before we get to the point of forced removals. And I can't see a world in which that will happen. Um, Also agree that the backlog is the main problem, but essentially I feel that the culture is too entrenched. Reform has been attempted for years and years and years, and I just don't feel that sufficient progress has been made. It seems like Windrush hasn't had as much of an impact as we would want. I mean, specifically Wendy Williams' uh, Lessons Learned report, particularly in relation to things like engagement with stakeholders. Um, and, and you know, just the the stuff we've seen with the National Indian Borders Bill and the way, like, the changes that have been made and it's just things have got so much worse, I just don't see enough improvement to think that the Home Office um, can be saved in relation to immigration and asylum. Um, I do. The other thing I did agree with you with 
uh, is in relation to ministers. Absolutely, they are part of the problem. But the extent to which they are part of the problem is unclear to me. And I don't think it is just them. So I think I have no idea how it would work. Um, but I think it would be best if immigration and asylum was removed from the Home Office. And really, I mean, this is why I don't know about the logistics of it, because I feel like you would just need to clear pretty much everyone out. But then what impact would ministers have on the new bit? So, yeah, I don't know. But I'm inclined to say it needs to be it needs to go. Yeah, I, I think that the what I think what drove me to to say no, slightly to my own surprise, was the the way that the grant rate has really gone up over the last few years. And I think it actually, it's one of the things that when you look into this has happened is that the the removal of Dublin um, cases has, has, basically they were, Dublin cases were artificially holding down the overall grant rate. It was, they're making it look lower than it was for, for various reasons because they've been double counted. Um, so actually more claims were always succeeding than we thought. Um, and, but you know, where you've got 76% of people who apply for asylum getting it from the home office, I kind of, I feel like culture change maybe has actually happened. If more decisions, if the backlog wasn't the size it is, I would be more trusting of those figures. But I don't know. I I don't know if anyone has done some real digging into the countries that have been granted and the countries that are still sitting in the backlog. But, you know, I wonder if potentially it's a matter of easy grants. It is unclear to me, but I just don't feel uh, confident enough. I remember in the article, you said uh, in previous years, it was not hard to find abundant examples of cruel and absurd decisions. And I'm afraid I still see them yeah, like but, frequently. But they're not necessarily representative. I suppose, I, I think there's a really serious issue there about maybe the statistics are soft in the sense that um, they're, they're short term. Maybe we're going to see them start to fall again um, once we get a, a greater volume of decisions. And perhaps they're picking, you know, like you say, easy grants like from sort of Syria, Afghanistan, Eritrea. Although I, I dug into the stats and it didn't seem like those countries were being overrepresented. I didn't do a really detailed sort of study of that, but it didn't look like they were being particularly overrepresented in the current batch of decisions as such. Um, so, yeah, but I, if, if, I think you're absolutely right. If, if it turns out that basically that rate falls again or, or plummets even, then, then that, that totally uh, kicks the legs out from under my, under my argument, so to speak. Um, but you know, we also have to remember that as lawyers, we tend to see maybe maybe this is more barristers than solicitors actually tend to see the ones that get refused. So uh, you know, I never meet people who get asylum from the Home Office because they don't they don't need me basically, um, and perhaps we're just not coming across all the all of these successful cases. Um, so we tend to get our, our opinion of Home Office decision making is basically jaundiced by seeing the refusals which perhaps aren't that much better than they ever used to be um mm. yeah I mean we do get some nice grants so obviously that's good but it's just the state of the refusal letters that I see it is still very very unhealthy for my blood pressure like just really really appalling things in there and you know I've seen some interview transcripts which are wildly troubling so yes things may have improved but I feel like there is still scope for more 
Yeah, and recruiting a bunch of completely um, novel sort of new people who who've never dealt with this um, and training them up very quickly isn't necessarily a recipe to sort of maintain high standards and stuff. So talking of blood pressure, I, I was um, doing a, a conference event, I think a week or two ago, where um, there was somebody senior in, in asylum policy at the Home Office was talking, and um, he um, he said something along the lines of, um, you know, if if you told me a year ago that we'd be able to welcome you know 150,000 Ukrainians in such a short space of time I'd, I'd have I'd have laughed I was just like you, <laughs> you well that's just that that is so indicative of the kind of mindset at the home office and I, I, I think he was trying to make that a sort of positive but it's just it was a sort of massive to my mind condemnation of the kind of institutional mindset at the home office and if, if that's their attitude then perhaps you're right just bring it on abolish them all Hmm. Okay. Well. Okay. Well, let's move on to the the next one, where again we might we might. I, although I suppose I I so heavily caveated and kind of meandered in my opinion in this one that um, again perhaps there's stuff to agree with, but I don't know if you if, if, if we might end up reaching sort of different conclusions. So this was this was quite a long rambling blog post I wrote, which I've had in my mind for an awfully long time. I gave a talk like years ago on this and I had a draft blog post and, and it sat in the drafts folder for a very, very long time um, about strategic litigation and the idea that it might actually not be a good thing. I sort of lawyers like strategic litigation. We like to get stuck into it. It's exciting. Um, but yeah, what, what my, my argument was that there is a potential uh, conflict of interest between lawyers and clients with this this kind of litigation where people become um, sort of guinea pigs, they become emblematic of a cause that carries a personal cost to them. It often delays the resolution of their case or it can delay the resolution of their case. Um, and there's an argument that it kind of embeds state power in a way because you're kind of you're not disputing that the state shouldn't be able to do this stuff in a way. It's more how it does it. Um, and I thought those were interesting arguments. But then when I started to actually go through the cases, um, you know, there are quite a lot of strategic litigation cases that fail. But even when they fail, they come with silver linings at the very least, um, things that do actually genuinely make things better. And I went through a few examples of that. And so one of the most recent is the um, uh, the PRCBC, the Project for yeah. the Restoration of Children as British Citizens case, which on the face of it is a fail. You know, they lost their case, but they very cleverly and very um, determinedly used that as a kind of focal point for a much wider campaign um, outside the courtroom, and it did lead to positive change. So, although the case lost essentially, um, it, it did lead in the end to a, a new waiver uh, facility for citizenship applications for, for children, which is kind of what they wanted at the outset. So, I, that that kind of could be used as an example of unsuccessful cases in a conventional sense but which ultimately succeed. Um, so yeah, and that's enough of me kind of rambling on about my rambling blog post. What, what, what did you think, Sonia? Um, well, full disclaimer, I'm on the expert panel for the Strategic Legal Fund. <laughs> um, so I am generally in favour. I think our sector is excellent at strategic litigation. I think it's at its best where law firms work with charities, so are not just litigating on behalf of their client. Uh, charities often have a lot of information that would otherwise be unknown to lawyers, something I became very aware of when I 
moved from being in practice exclusively to also working for a charity. Uh, I also think that the Home Office is intransigent in a way that is much more than other government departments. So I think it does make litigating them more necessary um, than it would potentially be with other government departments. Um, I do, having said all of that, I do have some pretty big concerns specifically around where crowdfunding is used. And it looks to me that legal aid should be available and should be used. So where legal aid can be used, I think it absolutely must be, not least because that provides cost protection for the applicant. So that is something that is really, really important. I'm also concerned around the lack of transparency around crowdfunding for legal action. Um, around, I, I just feel like it's unclear most, if not all of the time, exactly how the money uh, is intended to be used and then also how it has been spent. I think some of the websites, you don't even need to use it for legal action, but it's very unclear. What about assessment of bills? Does that ever happen? So I do feel like there needs to be some regulation in this area or there is a real reputational risk around strategic litigation generally if these things aren't resolved. Yeah, there was a, there was a really interesting article. I, well, I, I've only just still only read the abstract. So it came out, I think, something like a week or two after I'd actually finished the um um, the, the the most recent iteration of this piece, and again, it was I kind of rewrote it, and it was still in the draft folder for quite a long time before I published it. Um, and it was about crowdfunding, and I, I, I've been meaning to go back and have a look at that. Um, so it's the first kind of academic look at um, the, the the sort of. Uh, positives and negatives, I think, of of strategic litigation. Crowd, well, not necessarily strategic litigation, because crowdfunding isn't just about strategy stuff, is it? It can be in individual cases. Um, but yeah, you, I think I remember, there was a discussion on Twitter after I published this, and there's some really interesting points were were made. And I think what 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 was your what was your line about? I Colin Colin had woken up and chosen violence this morning. Yeah, I I laughed. <laughs> I laughed so much when I saw that you had tweeted this out. I was just like, oh, Colin, you've ruined your Monday. Wow. <laughs> you were right. I had ruined my Monday as well. Um, I got a certain amount of grief from certain quarters for that. Um, I mean, I yeah, I have to say this is something that. Uh, I discuss with people quite often, like it's something that we're always DMing and WhatsApping about. So it's something that is spoken about widely, including the concerns that I've just mentioned. Um, but, you know, people don't discuss it openly um, for the reasons you discovered when you published it. But, you know, I think it is healthy that this stuff is ventilated. Yeah. And there, and there, was, a, there was a really interesting discussion on Twitter, actually, quite a few people kind of saying, look, I agree with bits of what you've said and not with others and, and quite, quite polite and, and sort of useful discussion, I thought. Um, so there we go. Okay. Well, that, um, I think that wraps up. Um, I think that wraps up November. I don't think we've quite decided, um, whether strategic lit- litigation does more harm than good. Um, I, I don't think we've quite decided whether, we, <laughs> okay. I, I don't know. I think my, I think my conclusion probably did actually tend in that direction. I've got concerns, but you know there are lots of positive examples that you can sort of pick yeah. out of cases that either succeeded outright, like the um, the, the challenge to the fast track, or that s- seem to have failed on a conventional basis, but kind of you know introduced positive change anyway, like the um, um, PRBRC case um, on on citizenship fees and so on. So perhaps perhaps the conclusion is actually that um, strategic litigation does more good than harm. Um, and um, I think if I was to, to raise the, the Home Office abolition, then um, I, I don't know, you're almost always right 
Sonia. So you probably write about that as well. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So on that on that note, um, that wraps things up for November 2022, and we'll be back. uh, I guess probably in in the new year, we'll have to um, have recovered from our hangovers and all that, and um, be recording early in the new year. So happy new year, everybody, and um, and goodbye. Bye, everyone. Catch you in 2023.